I have a favorite Bible verse. Maybe I've mentioned it. You may have heard it and might even know it. It's from the very back of the Bible, from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. It's Jesus from the throne of glory in eternity, announcing over the shoulders of time, behold, I'm making all things new. New because an earthquake has devastated Haiti and now Mexico too. New because the adolescent's holding the burden of social media and she's not sure how much longer she can hold it. New because of all the versions of racial injustice that continue to wreak havoc on our lives and all of the systems of injustice that continue to mess with our communities and all of the injustices that break God's heart new. Not like some childish, naive wish, maybe the sun will come up tomorrow, but rather the disposition of God's heart turned into the action of Christ's life. Christ who died, rose again, ascended into heaven from where he promises to come again to make it all new. Behold, I'm making all things new. That's God's heart for you. And today we're going to celebrate the new God intends to do. Uh, Pillar, Pillar has a story of new. I was gasping for breath in the early 2000s, struggling, this historic church, a history full of mission and ministry, courage and faith had reached a low point. It was established by Dutch immigrants in 1847, led by Albertus Van Ralty. They came to West Michigan to establish a community for themselves, and the first thing they did was to build a church, the Log Church on Fairbanks and 16th. That became this church, built in 1856. They joined, they quickly joined a denomination we now call the Reformed Church in America, but what was then called the Dutch Protestant Reformed Church in America. Shortly after that, Another denomination was formed. We now call it the Christian Reformed Church of North America. They then called it the True Dutch Protestant Reformed Church of North America. A little friendly rivalry. Pillar stayed connected with what we now call the RCA. Uh, We survived the fire of 1871. We're all grateful for that. But the church began to go up in flames in 1882. Things were getting fussy. People were getting fidgety and picky. They were arguing about schools. Where should we send our kids to school, public or private? And if it were today, we'd add charter. They were getting picky about who has the right to come to the table, who gets to celebrate on a Sunday morning. And if you can imagine, they even argued about music in the church. What church around the world would ever argue about music? But they did. They argued, is it okay to sing those progressive hymns? They argued about theology, too, around the Heidelberg Catechism and how it ought to be taught. And then things burst into flame around the Masonic Lodge controversy. And one sad night in 1882, a group of people in this church gathered together and agreed, we cannot be one in Christ with you. We cannot worship together. The doors that night were locked with a chain to make sure certain people couldn't get in. Axe handles were used and held by some to make sure they didn't get in. The mayor 
of Holland at the time is said to have pranced up and down the front sidewalk with his fists clenched. There was an article on the Holland City News, the March edition of 1882, that described it as a riotous disturbance. And we split that day. We broke that day. The bond of unity that held us together that day unraveled. And a division the size of the Grand Canyon that sent tremors across the country happened that day. The the, the group that left the church went on to sue this one, a case that rose all the way to the state Supreme Court in the state of Michigan, who never weighed in with a decision implying, hey, wait a minute, aren't you the people of reconciliation? That division we allowed to exist for 130 years. And if you want to get a sense for the animosity that existed because of it, think Hope, Calvin, basketball on a Saturday afternoon. And then by the 2000s, this church was gasping for breath. It was dying. They they described themselves as a dying congregation. There weren't that many people here. They were struggling to pay their bills, and a whole lot of their energy went simply to their own survival. They wondered about giving away the building. They thought about locking the doors. No root beer kegger. No hog wild on the lawn on a Sunday afternoon. But instead, they imagined a different day. They wondered, what would happen if we apologized? What, what would happen if we said we were sorry for the division of 1882, the one we left to exist for 130 years? So on a Sunday in August 2012, we reestablished ourselves as a duly affiliated congregation of those two conflicted denominations. And on that day, we built a baptismal font made out of axe handles and chains, our way of joining the prophecy of Isaiah who says, your swords will become plowshares, your spears pruning hooks, and then we add with confidence, your axe handles will become baptismal fonts. And as God would have it, because that's how God has it, something new began to happen here. And today we want to celebrate the new God still intends to do, not just in a local church, but in your life, with you, with us, for the whole world. So listen with me. Listen with me to the story of God doing a new thing. It's from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep while the wind from God swept over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters to separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And it separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind, bearing fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind, bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. 
And there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. Let them be for days and for seasons, for times and for years. Let them rule over the day and over the night. So God set the lights in the dome of the sky, the, the, the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. He set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the seas bring forth swarms of living creatures and let winged birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And it was so. God made the great sea monster. And every living thing of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the seas and let birds multiply in the face of the earth. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth living creatures, cattle and the wild animals and creeping things. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and creeping things and all the wild animals of the earth. So God made humankind in his image, according to his likeness, male and female. He made them and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the creeping things that creep along the ground and every living creature. And God said, see, I've given you every plant-yielding seed and every tree bearing fruit with the seed in it. I've given them to you as food and to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the air and to all cattle, everything in which is the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were created, and all their multitudes. And on the seventh day, God rested from the work that he had done. So he blessed the seventh day, for on it he rested from the work that he had done. So God blessed it and hallowed it, for on it God rested from all the work that he had done. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. You can find it in a Bible near you or maybe the smartphone on you. I realize you probably have things going on today, so let me make this quick. Just two things. Something I find curious and then something so beautiful. Now, here's what I find curious. Maybe you'll find it curious, too. It's that, it's that repeated phrase throughout the creation story of Genesis 1, evening and morning, evening 
and morning, evening and morning, like the metronome of creation, evening and morning, giving, giving rhythm to our lives, evening and morning, setting, setting the world in order, evening and morning. I completely get evening and morning on day four, five, six, and seven. Makes all kinds of sense to me. On day four, God makes the great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the, the great light, the sun, the lesser light, the moon. I completely get evening and morning from day four to day five to day six to day seven. What must it have been like on that first sunrise when, when the pink hues of creation's first sunset was happening? The, the shadows of the mountains and the trees creeping across the horizon, the glint of sun on those freshly formed seas. It must have been amazing, breathtaking, if only we were there to breathe. Now, here's a picture of a Lake Michigan sunset I took this summer. Take that, remove history's worth of carbon emissions, and you might just approximate the beauty of that sunrise, sunset. I completely understand evening, morning rhythm from day four, five, six, and seven. But how can you have evening and morning on day one, two, and three when you have no sun or moon? No sun to shine the dawn into existence and no moon to glow the night into being. How can you have evening and morning with no sun or moon? Day one, God says, let there be light. And the only appropriate response creation had available to them was, and there was light. Not only the creation of light itself, but also the promise. God is the light. The promise that the poet John would give voice to later in the book of Revelation when he said, there'll be no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God will be its light and its lamb, the lamp. God is the, on day one, God is already promising what he will do one day through his own son, Jesus Christ, who entered into the world, the light that shines. This is why the psalmist would say, even darkness is as light to you. That's why the psalmist would pray, the Lord is my light and my salvation. This is why when the Bible tries to articulate the great incarnation of God into flesh, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Is it possible that even on day one, before we knew we needed a promise, God was promising his own son, the true light of the whole world, So I got a text message from a friend of mine. Maybe you can relate. He described his life this week as, a, as an arid wasteland. What if Christ intends to shine light into that darkness? For my friend and maybe for you too. Or, or what about the mental health tsunami that sociologists and psychologists are suggesting is already landing on our shores? What if Christ intends to shine the light into that darkness? Or all of the versions of broken relationships you know and neighborhood conflict you have and all of the reasons our heart breaks, hearts break over the pain of the world. What if Christ intends to shine the light into that darkness? God promises on day one, not only in creating the light, but actually the announcement of the great light, Jesus Christ himself, who will one day come to shine a light so bright no darkness can ever overcome it. That will preach, even through a camera. That's what I find so curious, that evening, morning rhythm before there was even sun and moon. And now so beautiful. I mean, it's all beautiful. I love it. God made the great sea monster 
and every creeping thing. I love it, amazing, so beautiful. It's like walking with my five-year-old daughter, Ava, the longest walk in the history of humankind just around the block. Dad, there's a moth. Get it for me. Dad, here's a roly-poly. Can I put it in your pocket? Dad, a spider, get it. Amazed at the beauty of creation. It's all so beautiful, but this maybe is most beautiful to me. Then on the seventh day, he rested. God rested from all the work that he had done. On the seventh day, God made rest, just like making Mount Baker and Mount Rainier and the Pacific Ocean running its tides and Lake Michigan with its stunning fresh water, just as God made all of those spectacular realities, so God made rest for you, for me, for us. Anybody need rest? Rest, not just from the torrid pace of events on our calendars, but from the torrid pace of events around the world coming at us, unrelenting. Anybody need rest? It's interesting to me. Humankind is made on day six. You almost sense God's delight. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, male and female. And let's have, let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and let them subdue the earth and fill it. God's so happy with humankind. So get, let me get this straight. God makes humankind on day six. And then day seven, God creates rest. So the first full day of human existence is rest. Just us with each other before the living God, naked. Naked before God, children of God, bearing beautifully the image of God in ourselves. Before we did anything, before we subdued anything, before we were doing any dominioning or filling or multiplying, as much as we love that, before we did any of that, We just were. We just were before the living God. Our first full day was rest. Maybe God creates rest not so that we can recover, but so that we can remember who we are. Before we do anything, we just are image bearers of God in the world. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to get her done to get acknowledged. You don't have to try so hard. You don't have to be good. You don't have to crawl on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting, to borrow a line from Mary Oliver. The first full day of human existence is rest. Anybody in need of rest? Not to recover, but to remember who you are first, who you are primarily, who you are most, a child of God, an image bearer of God. Everything else is derivative. I got a text message on Monday morning. An icon of our community here in West Michigan, Tiger Tusink, had died. Uh, You say Tiger in West Michigan, people don't think Detroit baseball, they think Holland tennis. Tiger Tusink is arguably the most decorated athlete most of us will ever meet. I got the text message that his battle with COVID that became pneumonia was over. And I actually, I couldn't believe it, to be honest with you. I didn't believe it. Tiger always wins. 
I mean, I believed what they were saying. I just couldn't get my head around it. I, I had this strange desire to call so many of the people that he influenced so deeply. So I called Tom Fabiano, the owner of the peanut store, their family's big tennis family in West Michigan. Then I called Emily Van Fossen. Emily and Joe and their families are part of the Pillar community. She, she was a student athlete for Tiger, both at Holland High and then when he was coaching at Hope College. She and I went back and forth over texts about Tiger. Uh, Emily, Emily's dad died some 20 years ago, and so Tiger played a really significant role in her life. No one can replace a dad, but he was certainly a father figure. Emily shared with me over our phone call that Monday afternoon a line that Tiger would repeat to all of his student athletes. She said he'd give us a hug, she called it a squeeze, and then he'd say, you are so special to me. And then she texted me all these notes that she had saved from Tiger, and in each of them, you are so special to me. I wonder if Tiger, in those little exchanges with student-athletes, was actually giving us a glimpse into God's heart. When God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, it was very good. You are so special to me. What if primarily you're a child of God? What if first you're a child of God? What if most you're a child of God? Everything else is derivative. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.